Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. It's back to school time, and with that comes an influx of colds, flus, required shots, and all sorts of fun for kids and their families as the year progresses. So what's the best way to work on staying healthy, and are there things that kids can do to avoid bringing their favorite germs home for everyone else to share? Well, in the studio, Dr. Brent Matsumoto is here from Kaiser Permanente, and he's going to explain more about how to keep the whole family healthy and maybe keep those germs where they belong, which is not coming home with schoolwork. But first in medical news, you know, we always wonder what's going on right here in research at home. So as part of the Summer Student Research Program, Hawaii Pacific Health Foundation has partnered college students, many of whom are planning on being the doctors of tomorrow, with physician mentors looking at what's happening here in research right here in the islands in various different medical arenas. We're lucky enough to have two of those students with us today. Welcome first to Charlene Kawili, and she's here working with Dr. Mark Grief doing some work with bariatric surgery. Now, Charlene, welcome to The Body Show. Hello. Tell me a little bit, where are you a student? I go to school at Manhattanville College in Westchester, New York. Okay, and so you're entering which year? I will be a senior in the fall. Fantastic. And what's your major? I'm majoring in biology, minoring in psychology. Well, that's interesting. Psychology and biology together. Mm-hmm. I wonder, that's an interesting combination. It is. So now your goal is to go into medicine? Yes. I've advocated highly for a gap year. Mm-hmm. I'm and telling, I will be taking a good. gap year. I'm telling your parents now that this is a worthwhile expenditure. <laughs> if they're listening, fund your daughter's gap year <laughs> or help her find ways to fund it. But what a great way to just sort of take the time to apply to medical school and also kind of learn what it is that you get inspired about in medicine. Now, tell us a little bit about your project that you're working on this summer. Well, this summer I'm looking at the health outcomes of bariatric surgery with a focus on sustained weight loss and the remission of chronic diseases such as type 2 diabetes and hypertension. So you're looking at people who have stomach surgery Mm -hmm. in order to reduce their body weight. Yes. And what other medical conditions improve when they do this. Yes. And if they can keep the weight off long term. That's exactly it. All right. Give us a sneak preview. Well, so far in well, my results, uh, there has been a there's been a um, statistical thing. There's been a could, difference. Yes, there's been a difference. Significant this, difference. Sure. Okay. Yes, in um, the decrease of medications and um, diabetes as well as hypertension. So if you have stomach surgery and you have a lot of diabetes pills and blood pressure pills mm-hmm. after you lose the weight a lot of folks get off of those pills. Yes, that's what we're seeing. Now, there have been actually some some recent articles that have looked at, can you cure diabetes? And, and we all think the answer is no, because there truly is no cure once you have this metabolic disorder, mm-hmm. with the exception of a unique population of folks. And they're the folks you guys are studying. Mm-hmm. And some research has said that bariatric surgery or stomach surgery can actually cure diabetes. Yes, there have been some literature that I've read, and um, in some patients, we have seen that as well. But I'm only looking at the two-year follow-up. So um, with some of the patients in like the five-year follow-up, you definitely do see like the cure. Now, when you look at the two-year follow-up, are you also looking at can they sustain the weight loss? Yes, I'm also looking at that. And how often does that, how often does that occur, that they sustain the weight loss, and how often is it a failure? Um, for the most part, the results have shown that they have been able to maintain like a sustained weight loss. 
So so it looks like if you do it the works. surgery, it yes, works. It definitely does. And at least for up to two years, we know it works well. Mm-hmm. And then also, as time goes on, we'll have more statistics for people, five years, 10 years, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Fantastic. So what was the most exciting part of your summer working with Dr. Grief? It may not have been working with Dr. Grief, but I mean, what part of this program has given you uh, the the best memory so far? I think the most exciting thing thus far has been to observe actually um, bariatric surgery in the OR because I got to see like the before and I've also gotten to see like the after when the patients do come in, like after their surgery and to have seen like their progression, I guess, over time. So you don't faint at the sight of blood? No, not at all. Well, I hope not if you were in the operating room. I'm (laughs) glad that you checked that one out beforehand. Well, it sounds exciting. Now, do you think research is going to be something that you do in the future? Um, I like research, but I think that I'm leaning more towards um, the clinical aspect of medicine, and I really would like to work with people. Well, the nice thing is, as part of doing your work with Dr. Grief, Mm -hmm. you can probably find that there's a role to do both. Definitely. All right. Well, we wish you the absolute best of luck in school. Great job for telling us about your project this summer. And also, good luck applying to med school and enjoying the gap year. Well, thank you. That sounds like I I want a gap year now, but nobody's really volunteered to fund me on a gap year. And I don't think think Straub would be that happy if I said, I'm going to take a gap year. I think they'd have my head on a platter. All right. Well, speaking of being a student and having a great chance to take some time and enjoy life a bit, next we have Jeff Kusaka. You are looking at some issues with kidney disease in kids. You're working with Dr. James Musgrave. And tell us a little bit about you, first of all. You are in what year of school? I'm going to be a senior this fall at the University of Southern California. Fantastic. And what's your major? I'm going to be a human. I am a human biology major. So they now have biology and human biology. Yes, they do. Interesting. Boy, times have changed from when I was in school, which is ancient history. (laughs) I'll tell you that much. Okay. So you're getting a degree in human biology, and you want to go into medicine in the future. Yes, I do. All right. And so tell us a little bit about your project and what you're doing. So I'm working with Dr. James Musgrave, and it's basically we're looking at a kidney disease uh, that has causes that are relatively unknown. But something special about this disease is that it'll go away every so often, or it'll go away for a while. And then at some point, it'll just come back. It's called a relapse. So we're trying to figure out how to prevent this disease from coming back and causing more complications in our patients. So the disease is idiopathic childhood nephrotic syndrome. And for those people who are not quite sure what idiopathic means, it means we're not quite sure what caused it. And so in this particular situation, kids have this kidney disease. Correct. And it goes away magically. Mm -hmm. But then it lurks. Yes. So what have you found so far? Any little insights, any hidden secret that you know about what makes it come back yet? So it's actually really interesting. We're looking at... The main uh, variable in our study is we're looking at how much of the steroid or the medicine that we're giving to a patient when the kidney disease does come back. And we've actually found that there's a pretty high correlation or a high chance that going to a doctor or having a doctor's appointment within a certain time frame of around two weeks actually causes an increase in a spontaneous relapse or like um, the kidney disease coming back just on its own. So seeing the doctor makes you worse. Possibly. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. James Musgrave, for just making me feel so good on a Monday. Seeing the doctor 
makes you worse. I think a bunch of my patients would probably go along with that. That's usually their excuse of why their blood pressure is so excited, uh, is that it's a nice and high because they're so happy to see us or afraid. So that's an interesting, uh, an interesting finding. Now, you've been working on this project over the summer. What's been the most exciting part of your summer so far? I think the most important. The most amazing part of this summer has been uh, Dr. Kalani Brady actually took us out to Molokai, and we got to visit Kalaupapa, which is the home of the last uh, patients of Hansen's disease. And aside from the breathtaking views, we really got to meet some of the patients and talk to them about their story. It really opened our eyes to like the humanistic part of medicine and what it means to really care for a patient. And it was probably one of the more defining moments of my life, I'd Wow. Say. And it's nice that he has a chance to take you guys there. Now, he flies in on a plane, and you guys take a mule. Oh, we actually hike down the switchbacks. So. Even worse. You hike down on foot. Yes. All right, Dr. Brady, you're hearing me. Take them on the plane. <laughs> I'm just making a suggestion. Or take them out on the plane. Because hiking down, granted, hiking downhill is actually difficult. But I would think hiking out would be a little worse. That was a little hard. A little hard. Yeah. Said by a young college student who clearly has yet to hit his 40s. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for sharing a little bit about what's going on with the research project that you're doing. And thanks also, Charlene, both of you, for coming on air today. That's a big deal. I mean, here we are with some students that are doing some research, and they're just kind of given this this command, come on radio, explain it to everybody and to the listeners. And you both did a fabulous job. So thanks for being the first of the group to come on and for doing so well. Thank you so much for having us. All right. Now, next on to the topic of bugs. Should you take drugs, in this case antibiotics, and what types of shots are needed for school kids these days? Well, Dr. Brent Matsumoto from Kaiser Permanente is in the studio. We're going to talk about what you can do to stay healthy all year long if you have kids in your family. Now, if you're a parent and you found a great way to keep germs from coming home, let us all in on your secret. You can join us at 941-3689 or toll-free 877-941-3689 from our friends on the neighbor islands. Dr. Matsumoto, welcome to The Body Show. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. We were talking a little bit beforehand about our next wave of physicians who will take over our jobs as we age and get older and they come into the system. And, you know, it's funny because we both agreed that we really enjoy what we do, that it's sometimes difficult, sometimes challenging, but we really enjoy it. So, Tell me, what are some of the things that parents can do so that during the school year they can enjoy their kids and not necessarily have everybody get sick? I mean, it's nice for us to see them, take care of people, make sure that we keep them healthy, but kids bring home stuff. How can we keep them from bringing it back to the house? I think, as you alluded to earlier, I think um, the, the most important thing that we do is uh, immunizations, and um, um, that's probably the primary uh, means of preventing children from acquiring illnesses. But second to that, uh, and much um, underrated would be hand washing. I think proper hand washing um, probably is the, the second most important way to prevent um, our children and ourselves from, from picking up infections. Now, hand washing, any particular soap, what do you think about the alcohol, hand gels? What's your thought on all that? I think it, it's more important um, that that we practice proper hand washing and not necessarily what particular soap we use. And so 
Um, I try to instruct my patients to to make sure that they're washing for at least a period of 20 to 30 seconds. And so the easiest way to motivate children to do that would be to to have them sing a song, whether it be their their ABCs or pick a a, a common nursery rhyme for them to sing, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of 20 to 30 seconds so that they get used to um, the the timing of the 20 to 30 second rule as as far as washing their hands. And as far as... um, the, the hand-based cleansers, um, the, the important thing to remember about hand-based cleansers is um, that it should be an alcohol content of at least 60% um, for it to be effective. And most of the, the products that we see, whether it be bath and body or whatnot, um, tend to be 60 to 90% um, alcohol-based. And, and so that's the most important thing to know. So which one is better in your mind? Hand-washing, 20, 30 seconds, or alcohol hand sanitizer? I think, as with anything, is whatever is most available to you. Um, definitely, if you were talking about um, soiled hands, um, younger kids who have a lot of, you know, snotty you noses dirt on them and, and dirty ick. and drooly and saliva, and, Use the soap and, and then definitely it, it would be um, uh, advised to to do proper hand washing. But um, if if what you have available when you're going out to eat or to a restaurant would be a, a hand cleanser with uh, alcohol based, then of course that would be better than nothing. Now, what if you got a bunch of germs all over your books and stuff? Um, what do you do with that? I mean, do you Lysol spray them? I mean, I don't know. That would be most most um, infections that we're talking about as far as, you know, returning to school would be um, um, transmitted you know, by common places of, of contact, whether it be the door handle or or, or um, kids touching each other, playing with each other. Um, but as far as, you know, school supplies, um, supplies where your child is individually going to touch by themselves. I, I don't think I would get carried away with sanitizing everything. Okay, so pick and choose your battles. Correct. Look at where hands touch doors and other people's hands touch doors. Correct. Look at bathroom sinks, all that kind of stuff. And prevention is much better than having to treat it. Correct. Now let's talk about some of the immunizations because kids these days can't go to school until they have a certain series. Is that Correct. right? And so they have to prove they've had immunity to certain certain infections that could be highly transmitted. And so that way they're able to go to school and be safe. But tell me about flu shots. That's one of the ones that, you know, I think some schools actually offer it as part of the kids being in school. A lot of parents want to go ahead and have their kids get it from their pediatrician. I even have sometimes when I see parents suggesting go get your flu shot, they're like, oh, no, no, it gave me the flu. It made me sick. I don't want it. Do you hit that kind of resistance with some of the kids that you see? I think the the flu shots in the school has um, has been rather successful as far as a program um, to get our children um, vaccinated um, against influenza. Um, parents have been more open to to having their children vaccinated at the schools. There, of course, there are still those um, select few who, who would rather or prefer their children to be vaccinated at a physician's office. Um, but I think it, it, it has increased our um, influenza vaccination rates as far as having it available at the school. Well, and I know that it's also increased the rates, you know, in employee settings. You know, if you're mm-hmm. parents and you are at work and there's a flu shot available, if you have to take time out of your day to go to your doctor's office to wait, find parking, wait in line, wait for appointments, get your shot, it kind of decreases the likelihood you're going to get it. If you can just have it available right then and there, and somebody says, hey, look, we've got it. It's right here. Do you want it? It takes you five minutes. It's during your lunch hour. It kind of increases compliance. Anytime, anytime you make something more convenient, you're more likely to increase compliance. And then there's always the, uh, the question of whether or not in a healthcare facility should it be mandatory. 
um, I think it should be, especially if we're we're dealing with um, with you know children, especially in our in our clinic, um, so that we don't pass these um, these illnesses along. I agree. I mean. I know it'd sort of be shocking to say I'm. I think we should make it mandatory, but unless you have a medical reason why you don't get the shot, I think it should be people in medical centers, people who work with patients who have direct contact, really should make sure they're protecting themselves, their families, but also the general public. So, I know a few years ago they were doing research as to what medical centers here in the island had the highest rates of immunization, and it was those who made it mandatory. So one way to take a look at it is protect yourself, protect everybody else, but boy, don't spread germs. Now, how do parents know, should I keep Johnny home from school, he's sick today, versus is he well enough to go to school and will he be able to keep the other kids from getting sick? Are there some easy rules of thumb? I think in general for um, illnesses that are associated with fever, I think um, it goes without saying that they shouldn't be attending school should they have a fever. And and, and most illnesses, um, I would say as long as they're they become fever-free for 24 hours, they're okay to return. As far as rashes, we see a lot of rashes as well when children return to school. Um, again, most, the, the general um, majority of rashes, um, as long as they're covered, um, they're okay, or, you know, and being treated, they're okay to return to school. So what kind of things cause all the rashes? I mean, in our day and age, chicken pox was a big issue, but these days kids get shots to protect them from the pox. So it's rare that we see something that would cause a rash that would be as infectious as something that, you know, you or I might have had when we were younger. Uh, when do when do kids get chicken pox of, uh, shots and what kind of rashes are okay? Uh, the first uh, chicken pox vaccine is administered at 12 months of age, and then uh, we then can give a booster anytime after three years of age. And so most children, by the time they start uh, daycare, preschool, um, and definitely by kindergarten, will have obtained their, their two um, varicella vaccines. So the immunity they've got, so the, the rash that would make me worried, you don't have to worry about because you're not going to get pox if you've already been given immunity to it. Correct. So what are the common rashes where you can just slap a bandage on it and keep going? I think the rashes that we're currently seeing right now in the community as far as uh, in this morning in clinic um, would be rashes such as impetigo, um, which is a bacterial infection. Um, we see things like ringworm, um, um, which is a fungal infection, and, and more of those kind of illnesses that can probably be treated um, with over-the-counter medications. Um, Let's talk about ringworm for a second because it's in a ring, but it's not a worm. <laughs> People get freaked out when they hear ringworm, like, oh, no, or like fungus, like, oh, man, what's going on? Ringworm, it's not that big of a deal. It's not. Okay. It's, um, it's basically a, a, a dermatophyte. It's a fungal infection that, that uh, um, affects the skin, and, and its classic presentation is that it, it looks like a ring, like you alluded to, and, and it, it's, it's a ring of, of bumps, basically, with most often a, a, a central area of clear, normal skin, um, and, and that's um, classic for ringworm. And it's not serious. It's not serious. It can be treated with over-the-counter um, antifungal, what we call azole antifungal uh, medications that we can that can be attained um, at your local pharmacy. And it takes a while for it to go away. It does. It usually does. So don't freak out if it doesn't go Do away not. in a week. No. You're talking three or four or more weeks. Sometimes. Okay. 
All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Brent Matsumoto from Kaiser Permanente, and we are talking about ways to keep your kids and yourself and your loved ones healthy all year long, particularly as school has started. If you've got a trick, something you've taught your kids or something you've learned over time, you can join us. We'd love to hear from you and maybe share that knowledge with everybody else along the way. You can call us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. I listen to Hawaii Public Radio all the time, usually while I'm in my car, driving from one place to another. I love the news programs on public radio. I love listening in the morning and getting a good synopsis of what's going on for the day and then the commentary that breaks it down. And I feel like it's, it's good, solid news that I can trust. Member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Learn why some folks say the Swiss people are a lot like coconuts. They have this hard outer shell that really protects their privacy. And it can be difficult to break through that. Experience the rare bits of Wales, including its uncanny language. It's said to be the language of heaven, but I'm sure a few other languages are spoken there too. And tour the folk music scene in Italy on the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m. following Fresh Air. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Brent Matsumoto from Kaiser Permanente. We're talking about kids going back to school and bringing fun stuff home for their parents And no, I don't mean good grades. And if you've got a question or a concern or you wanted to know what was that funky rash that my son brought home or do I need to keep my daughter home from school, hey, this is the time you get to your chance to ask a question and hear from an expert. So we're here at 941-3689, toll-free 877-941-3689. Now, before the break, we were talking a little bit about rashes, those mystery red bumps and lumps that you wonder, is that going to be contagious or not? And we talked a little bit about how most things, really, not so bad. Don't worry about ringworm. It's not a ring. It's not a worm. It's just a little topical kind of fungal infection. And you can get that even out in the out in the ocean these days. Is that right? Yes. Um, oftentimes, though, with um, especially... Uh, teenagers who who go to the beach often we see a different type of fungal infection as you might know would be tinea versicolor which is which is also a, a fungal infection that pe- get that can be treated with antifungal medication we know what they call it you didn't want to say it i'm going to say it they call it halley rot <laughs> you know it i know it i've seen it it's not meant to be derogatory it's meant to describe skin that is discolored and often lighter in appearance in certain folks, and it can be treated. So another thing you can do is is if you have any kind of a skin issue, check it out, see your doctor, have them send you to a dermatologist if needed. But there are some topical treatments, easy stuff. Yes, for most of these illnesses. For most of them, Mm -hmm. sure. Okay. Should you ever try stuff on your own over the counter, or should you be a little wary of doing so? I think a lot of these um, illnesses can be treated with over-the-counter medications, but, um, you know, it helps to know what it is that you're treating. Um, fortunately, at Kaiser, we have the ability to have patients uh, email us photos now, and that's made um, diagnosis of rashes by uh, email virtually um, 
a lot easier, and so we can look at a photograph of of a rash, um, see what it is, make the diagnosis, and if it could be treated by uh, over-the-counter medications and make that um, recommendation and, and save them a visit. Now, this is through, like, their electronic medical record? Correct. Okay, so they're not, like, texting you no, photos no. of rashes <laughs> on your cell phone Saturday night. No. Nope. You know, you're with your family. You're like, who's this and what is that? Okay. So through their medical record, they can go ahead and use that ability to send photos of something. Correct. Through our um, our website at kp.org. And, you know, it's also a good resource for information for them. They, they are able to see their immunizations, um, their labs. Um, they can even schedule appointments with us and send us emails, like I said, and attach photos now. Yeah, I think having having that access, that power of folks to have the ability to use the Internet to help with their own health care. Honestly, I think patients own their own charts, and they should be able to have access to those. Years ago, people carried their own chart, and now it's you know sequestered in offices or now it's electronic. But I'm a big fan. The more information that people have at their disposal, the better. And then if there's some inaccuracy, they can change it, correct it, or do whatever they feel they need to do so we can really all work together to take care of health. So, okay, now, what are some of the things that, um, you know, might keep somebody home for the day? You said if there's a fever, kids should stay home if they've been fever-free for at least 24 hours. They could probably go back to school. How do parents know when they should bring their child to the doctor versus when maybe they don't need to and they can keep them home? Uh, Most illnesses, um, especially in in the uh, older children, the school-aged child, um, I, I think could be monitored at home for a good 48 to 72 hours, you know, treated with uh, over-the-counter medications um, for fever. Um, most of the illnesses that we see tend to be respiratory infections and tend to be um, from respiratory viruses um, that can easily be treated um, with um, you know, home remedies um, as well as over-the-counter medications. Now, can kids take cough medicine and still go to school? Well, I would say as far as the cough medicine, um, in since 2008, um, the recommendation has been, um, at least for children less than age four, um, the recommendation has been against the use of cough and cold medications, specifically against medications directed at um, cough and decongestants. Um, but we still recommend the use the, of medications for fever, pain. Um, common medications now are, are um, for uh, mucolytics or... So, or um, for help, helping to break up mucus. Um, so if you're over four, it could be okay. It could be, yes. But I would still say at the direction of your physician. And so in your case, when you see people who are, you know, maybe in the 8, 9, 10 age group, it would be okay or maybe save that for when they're home? I think it would be okay um, to, to use the cough and cold medications, um, you know, as directed on the labeling um, at home. Okay. And so they could still, if kids felt well enough, go to school. Now, when you see situations where kids are coughing a lot, they're sneezing a lot, there's a lot of germs involved, and they don't realize how far those germs can be spread when they cough or they sneeze, are there any precautions the parents can take with other siblings? I think it all gets back to hand washing. Um, Wash your hands. Wash your hands. Just all day long. Just think about it. Wash them. Again, yes. Now, what do you do if your skin breaks down because you're washing it so much? You get a whole new kind of rash. Just treat it with lotion. Hope that helps. Yes. All right. Now, some of the other things that parents obviously get worried about when school starts is we talked a little bit about rashes, and there are some other less than fun things to talk about, you know, 
lice and stuff in the hair. What can people do or parents do if they're worried about that? And how do you check to see if that's what's going on? And it makes it seem like it's such a big deal when it's actually fairly common. Tell me a little bit more about lice, Brent. I don't see it so much on my practice, or maybe I just don't look for it. Tell it me about lice. It's quite common, and actually my last patient in the morning was was because I've had I'm lice. starting to scratch as I see um, you. Great. You keep it over <laughs> on your side of the studio. Um, another um, another illness that can easily be treated with uh, over-the-counter medications, but, but really... Um, with head lice, you can uh, identify the nits on the hairs, and and they're usually immobile. Um, you know, they're they're easily visible. Um, over the counter medication, the most common would be Nicks. Um, that w- there are other um, prescription medications, but they tend to have other side effects, and so um, we generally recommend Nicks, which is an over the counter medication. So let's talk about what we could put in like a parent's back to school first aid kit for their kids. So we've mentioned. If you're over four, cough medicine would be okay. Treat fevers with things like acetaminophen or Tylenol. Aspirin, no go for kids. Just don't do it. You know, when I was younger, we actually took aspirin, but that stopped. Probably now I'm dating myself, which is bad news. But okay, so no aspirin for kids, but Tylenol okay if you follow the directions in the bottle for children's Tylenol. And then we also talked a little bit about Creams and things you could put on. You could have a little cortisone cream, maybe a little antibacterial cream if you wanted it, um, to put in a little first aid kit for your kid. What else would be in that kit so that if your son or daughter come home and they're sick or your you know, your niece or nephew, you've got something in the house to start treating it? I think that pretty much covers it. I, I would say the only other medication that I might include would be an antihistamine, um, such as Benadryl, which would be good for you know congestion, drying the nose out, or it would be good for allergic reactions, itching, rashes that have itching. Um, but aside from that, I think you covered it all. All right. So that could be a nice way to kind of keep things in the house, keep it ready so that if you have a problem, you know what to do. Now, when we talk about having kids go to school and getting exposed to other sorts of cold and flus, are there any other sorts of common illnesses that kids get? We talked about flu. We talked a little bit about respiratory infections. What about pink eye? That's something that, you know, is pretty contagious, kids and adults. What should you do if your kid's eyes get really red? And how important is it to treat that with antibiotics or maybe not so much? Um, you know, there's three common causes of a child to have a pink eye. Um, one would be allergic, which is probably the most common that we see here in Hawaii. Um, number two probably would be bacteria. And then viral pink eye is your classic allergic pink eye. And they all present differently. Um, the allergic pink eye is, is going to be at itchy, itchy, sometimes puffy eye. Bacterial pink eye um, is that classic goopy yellow-green discharge, which which usually requires the use of, of antibiotic eye drops. And then the viral pink eye um, is basically stay away from everyone so you don't get anyone else sick. And it's often hard not to infect your own other eye. Correct. I mean, when you're awake, you can try and keep that away. But, boy, if you're asleep, it's not your fault if you rub one eye and rub the next. So only if it's kind of that goopy, really greenish kind of discharge should you consider antibiotics are necessary. Otherwise, if it's a virus, stay home. If it's allergies, take a look in the environment, see what's going on. Or an antihistamine. They, they, you can take an oral antihistamine or they also have um, antihistamine eye drops as well. 
So we know about when you would take antibiotics for eye infections. What about taking antibiotics for other sorts of respiratory kind of infections? There's often a lot of a lot of people in the world of pediatrics who think that kids should build up their immune system and they should you know, have their immune system learn to handle certain infections and they'll build up immunity. And that even in adults, we shouldn't all rush to antibiotics as the first option as soon as someone gets a fever or sore throat or something. What are your thoughts on that? So most respiratory infections are caused by viruses, and antibiotics, of course, don't work against viruses. And so uh, the mainstay of treatment would be supportive care. Of course, when we're talking about um, bacterial infections, such as the most common being ear infection in children, pneumonia, um, you know, we try to do religious use of, of, of antibiotics. And, and um, you know, new, and new recommendations are coming out as far as watchful waiting, you know, for ear infections. If they're, you know, an older child, not in significant amount of pain, see if, if you can get away with supportive care for 48 hours. And if they don't get any better, then initiate antibiotics at that time. And we're also looking at shortening the duration. I mean, classically, we've been doing 10 days of antibiotics, and, and the newer recommendations are to do five to seven days of antibiotics. Um, Why should we be worried about antibiotics? The more antibiotics we use, of course, the, the more um, we, we develop um, antibiotic-resistant organisms, and, and that's the concern, the biggest concern. So out of all the kids you may see for a respiratory infection, how often is it a virus versus bacterial? Because this is something I kind of want to... I kind of want to get this point across a little bit here because <laughs> I see a lot of folks, and unfortunately, if you get better in a certain time frame, you may attribute it to the antibiotics that you got, but in fact, you might have gotten better on your own anyway. So most infections that kids would get, respiratory infections, they're, they're sneezy, runny nose, congested nose, sore throat, cough, are viruses. But from what you see, about what percentage do you think would be viral? I would say 80 to 90%. 80 to 90 percent. So if you were going to Vegas and somebody said, you've got an 80 to 90 percent chance of winning at this game, I would play it. I'd be putting all my money on whatever that game was. So if you're a parent and you're wondering, should you or shouldn't you go ahead and give your child that antibiotic or should you bring them to the doctor, you got an 80 to 90 percent chance of it being a virus. So you don't have to worry if it seems like they're getting better. Don't rush to the doctor. You don't have to get medication. You might need to, to get a, a work note or a school note or something, but less is more when it comes to antibiotics. Would you agree? I would agree. Yeah. And, you know, we see people who, do you see a lot of antibiotic allergies? You know, by the time I see people when they're an adult, 18 and over, I'll see a fair amount of allergies in some folks. Um, and we know not to give that particular medication again, but... Do you see that a lot when you first give kids antibiotics? Do you see a lot of penicillin allergies still out there? I don't think we see very many. Um, we tend to see some rashes um, develop in patients who are on antibiotics, but oftentimes that rash is attributed to a virus that they may have um, and not truly an allergic reaction. And so I think um, children with allergic reactions are the exception and not the rule. Let's talk allergies. Allergies are that other thing that can give kids runny nose and watery eyes and congestion and sneezing. And how old do you usually see kids come in presenting with allergies? And should parents be worried about this? Should they not? How do they know the difference? I think we're seeing children um, now come in younger at younger and younger ages, um, you know, down to two, three years of age, um, coming in with chronic um, congestion, runny nose, cough. Um, and a lot more frequent than we used to in the past, I believe. 
Now, when you say chronic, that kind of helps to define it as probably, you know, Jane hasn't been sick for six months. If she's always sniffly and sneezing, it might be that she might have allergies. So what duration of time would you be concerned about if your child has certain symptoms? At what point would you say, you know, it's probably been there chronically enough that it could be an allergy and check it out as part of an allergy as opposed to being related to an infection? I think it depends on whether or not uh, it impacts the child's life. Um, you know, a lot of us have allergies, uh, and we live we will live with it day to day, and and uh, it's more of a hassle for us to take medication and to treat it than it is um, to live with it. Um, so I, I think it depends on how much it's it's impacting the child's life. If they're if they're coming down with recurrent sinus infections or other bacterial infections um, as a consequence of having the allergy. Well, that's a really good point. Can you live with it? Is it worth all the squirts and sprays and pills if you don't have to take it? Can you outgrow those sorts of things? I always hear some of the adults that I'll see will say, you know, I had asthma as a child. I outgrew it. I had allergies. I outgrew it. Do we see that happen a lot? I think I think we see that more in the in the in the childhood population. I think um, definitely with asthma. I think you see a lot of um, childhood wheezers, um, if you would, um, that tend to outgrow that. Um, allergies, on the other hand, I think that tends to stay with us. I think um, it's just that the older you get, the more tolerant you become of them, and um, and the less it, it becomes a hassle or a bother. Very true. I think, you know, once you learn to live with a little bit of sinus congestion, you might just think that's better than taking a lot of pills. But So asthma, kids actually can grow out of it, and then they don't have it any further, maybe only if they're sick when they're an adult, but not a big deal when they're younger. Correct. All right. Now, we've talked a little bit about what happens when kids go to school. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what happens when you take your kids on a break. Why does it always seem like every time it's time for fall break or Christmas break or spring break, somebody in the family has gotten sick and somebody is spreading those germs to everybody else. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Brent Matsumoto, and we are talking today about what to do when your kids are coming home and bringing germs, bringing more than just good grades home, but they're bringing home infections from other folks. Now, if you want to join us at all, you can at 941-3689, toll free from our friends in the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break, and we're going to share some more secrets on how to stay healthy for the school year to come. Stay with us. Every weekday afternoon, take a pause after fresh air for a walk through a Hawaiian forest. Listen for the call of the palila bird, smell the scent of sandalwood, and watch out for that invasive fountain grass. Christopher Phillips hosts this 13-week HPR series, Mahalo Aina. We'll get a guided tour of the many benefits provided by our island forests and the work being done to protect and preserve these diverse ecosystems. Join him as we give back to the forest with HPR's Mahalo Aina. The TPP negotiations on Maui last week ended without resolution to issues that would solidify the agreement. So what happens now? We'll talk with East-West Center Senior Fellow Michael Plummer tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. 
Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Brent Matsumoto from Kaiser Permanente. We're talking about how to keep kids healthy all year long and how to make sure that your spring break, fall break, and Christmas break is and summer break is actually a break and not just time to get sick all the time. So let's talk a little bit about injury prevention because that's one of those fun things that you never want to have happen, but it always seems like it does at the least convenient moment. So Dr. Matsumoto, let's say we're really good. We wash our hands. We don't bring germs home. We've been we've been healthy. We're we're going back and forth to school, playing sports, enjoying ourselves. But we get injured because maybe we don't do what we should. What are some of the easy things that parents can do to help keep their kids from getting injured? Is there any particular equipment that kids need to use when doing certain activities? I think um, especially now that school's back in session and, and there's a lot of um, cars on the road, I think the first thing we need to, to discuss would be um, proper uh, car utilization of car seat and, and car seat restraints. Um, there is a group actually called the Keiki Injury um, Prevention Coalition, and they have a website. That's kipchawaii.org, and um, they have uh, useful information as far as um, proper use of car seats, and they actually put on um, free car seat checks um, for the community, mostly done at Kapilani and as well at Kaiser. Um, but um, especially with siblings in the car, you know, the newer recommendations um, now for um, for infants would be a rear-facing car seat until two years of age. Um, and as far as um, booster seats, we like to see, um, well, it's law that um, children are in booster seats until four foot nine. But, but the way you can tell would be the the uh, car seat, uh, or excuse me, the safety belt should uh, ride across the hips. It should ride um, across the collarbone um, and, and not um, over the neck area. And so look at how the kids are sitting in the car. Step one is Correct. go with the basics. Are they okay in their vehicle? And if you have multiple siblings, make sure there's enough seats for every child so that they all have a seat belt available and they have ways to stay protected. Kids like to play sports. How important are helmets? Well, there's also a helmet law that most people aren't aware of in Hawaii. And the helmet law, unfortunately, only applies um, to bicycle helmets. And um, you um, are required by Hawaii state law to be in a bicycle helmet if you're under the age of 16. And like I said, unfortunately, it doesn't apply to skateboards, scooters, ripsticks. Um, but, of course, that would be a recommendation that would uh, keep your child safe. Okay, I don't even know what a rip stick is. <laughs> I'm that old. So these are sporting things that kids would use, and because they could potentially hit their head, would be better if they wore a helmet. Correct. Now, if kids are wearing helmets, you can still get injured. You have to make sure the helmet fits correctly. You have to make sure the helmet is actually rated against injuries. Not all helmets are the same. Correct. And at these um, car seat safety checks, as well as on the website, um, they do as well offer um, proper fitting uh, of bicycle helmets. Are there safe ways that kids can participate in sports, get a little rowdy when they have that extra energy, and not have injuries? I think it's difficult. I think, um, uh, you know, we as parents need to um, need to be aware that the, that our younger children are more prone to injury um, and, and not push them to their limits. 
So if the kids feel comfortable, if they feel well, if they're wearing a helmet with activities, if the parents feel okay because, you know, at least the kids protected in various sports and various activities they might be doing, if they wash their hands like crazy, then they should stay healthy. Now, there's another part of staying healthy that we often overlook quite a bit, and that has to do with making sure kids get enough rest and proper nutrition. How much sleep do kids really need? The school-aged child up until the teen years probably require at least 10 hours of sleep. 10 hours of sleep. 10 hours of sleep. Up until teenage years. Correct. What happens in teenage years? I usually use uh, as a motivator, the the more you sleep, the taller you get, and and that tends to work. That probably works pretty well. Okay. (laughs) Until you got like kids that are like 6'5", they're like, I'm going to stay up all night. But okay, so so about 10 hours would be helpful. And do you think that with, with kids as they become teenagers, we often see they have a harder time getting things together in the morning. They kind of want to sleep in a bit, yet most high schools start pretty early. Should we take a closer look at that and change the hours of school, do you think? I think as far as sleep is concerned, we just need to be looking at um, proper sleep hygiene with our children these days, especially with um, the amount of electronics that uh, children have these days. And, and you know, they're, they're texting or they're they're playing video games till late at night, and and so they're not getting to bed late. And if if they are, they're having difficult time falling asleep. Um, and so really, they're they're not having enough sleep and and are not well rested, um, and, and thus having a difficulty um, waking waking up in the morning. And that can affect learning and school and Correct. grades and who knows further down the line. There have been studies that have shown that if you have an electronic screen that sort of has backlit and it's lighting the front of your eyes, that you actually have a harder time falling asleep because that light goes to the back of your eyes to those sensors that says, hello, stay awake, stay awake, something's going on, and yet you want to fall asleep. So should kids not be using any electronics within like an hour of bedtime? They should not. They should try to refrain from using especially video games, just because it's so stimulating. True, because you want to win. You want to win. You have to go faster or something like that, and it gets you energetic right when you're supposed to be falling asleep. What about meals? What about having proper nutrition? Is that something that we don't do as well in the school years as we should? I don't think we do it as well, of course. Um, in adult years either. That's true. <laughs> that goes without saying. Um, the uh, the new message that we're, we're trying to spread as far as uh, – Health and nutrition um, in the schools would be the 5210 uh, message, which would be um, five fruits and vegetables a day, um, no more than two hours of screen time, one hour of, of physical activity, and try to avoid those um, sugary beverages. So we're talking about the sodas and stuff like Correct. that. I think schools don't, they don't have them a lot these days. I don't think they're available think, as much as they used to I be. I think it's cut back a lot. And so hopefully with school meals, they're getting a little more nutritious. So... Five fruits and vegetables, two hours of screen time. No more than two hours. No more than two hours. Okay, I've got to get my my lingo right. So five fruits and vegetables, no more than two hours of screen time, one hour of exercise, and zero on the sodas. Correct. Do you think diet sodas are bad for kids? I think so. Uh, A soda is a soda, I, I think. Um, it might lead to craving regular no, and, sodas. Then there's or... caffeine. Then you bring in the issue of caffeine as well, um, affecting sleep. Um, so I think in general, if we can stay away from them altogether, it's easier. I'm glad you're in pediatrics. 
because that means that you see kids until about the age of 18. <laughs> so I feel like I can enjoy myself, my diet soda, when I need the caffeine burst. But, uh, you know, as you're young, I think people underestimate how important it is to provide healthy brain growth, which, you know, if you're already in your 30s and 40s and beyond, you want to preserve the brain you got. But while you're growing, that's a really important time to make sure that you do as much as possible to try and keep yourself healthy and, you know, make sure that you're eating all the fruits and vegetables, eating all of the omega-3s and all those sorts of well-balanced dietary ingredients so that you don't wind up having troubles later. Now, before the show, we talked a little bit and you said the hardest population you have to deal with are the teenagers. Why is that? I think it's hard to motivate them. Motivate them to do what in particular? Eat healthy, wash their hands, that kind of stuff? All of the above. Okay. And so what are some of the tricks that you have to motivate some teenagers? Or, I mean, I, I can you motivate them? Have you been successful? And if so, what's worked? I think you need to um, find out what's important to that specific teenager and um, make it relevant to uh, what's important to them at the time. So if they say what's important is, you know, they want to get good grades, then that would be, I mean, hopefully. I don't think a lot of teenagers are out there saying, I want to get straight A's. But if they are, kudos to you. And parents should try and help support them in that endeavor in any way they can. And I also think um, try to attack those problems that you think um, you can make a difference with. Um, sometimes if they're just not motivated, you know, weight would be a, a big one. You know, if, if it, it, they're, they're not bothered by their weight, if they're not ready to make a change, um, then they're not going to be wanting to listen to you, give them a lecture on, on losing weight and, and exercise and watching what they eat. And so I think you have to pick your battles as well. So don't pick five battles at once. No. no screen time, more fruits and vegetables, no sodas, exercise more, and get straight A's. Just kind of pick one area at a time for parents to focus on. Now you as a, as a physician, when you see teenagers and you talk with them about some of their health issues, what are some of the common things that they say concern people in their age group? I think meeting expectations of their parents is a big one. So they're just trying to do what their parents want them to Correct. do. Okay. And when, at what age do you start seeing kids by themselves? I mean, when you're in a teenage environment, at some point you should be able to talk to the doctor and maybe not have mom or dad there, but there's also all these issues with parental consent for treatment. When do you start seeing teenagers by themselves, if you do at all? In general, during the high school years. So high school, if you want to talk to your doctor, talk to your parents, tell them, I want to go in and see Dr. Matsumoto by myself. And what sorts of questions usually come up in that situation? I mean, I can only think immediately, and maybe I'm just totally off base, but first thing I'm thinking is STDs. That's actually not one that comes up very often. Not one that comes up often. <laughs> see, this is why I'm not in pediatrics, because I'd be totally out of date and, and not knowing what's going on. So what often does come up? Uh, nutrition, studying, how can I do better, what can I do um, to perform better in school. Sports is a, is a big one, you know. Um, what, you know, what can I, what supplements can I take, what can I do to, to help me to perform better. Um, are there safe supplements that kids can use? In general, there aren't. Um, you know, healthy diet would be your best. And so if, if uh, kids come in 
guys or girls and say, I want a supplement to help me to build bigger muscles and I want to sort of be buff and I'm, I'm not yet at that age when I've developed to that degree. Really, reaching for supplements and other things, not really going to help you in the long run. In general, no, not in the high school years. And, boy, I see certainly adults who come in and they still have the same thoughts. Can I have all these different types of powders and does this help me to bulk up? And in a lot of cases, really, it's, it's not the healthiest alternative for you. Finding a nice, healthy source of your proteins and of your muscle building, uh, different types of ingredients that you can get from natural fruits, vegetables, lean proteins, etc., probably best for you overall. All right, so we've talked a little bit about how to stay healthy when you're in grade school. How can teens stay healthy? Are there any particular types of things they can do? I know hand washing is big on the list, but what are some ways that teenagers can stay healthy if they're not in a situation where they're the sniffling young kid and they've gotten a little older? Are there any ways you can keep infections from kind of spreading all around some of the schools? I think for teenagers, mainly it's sharing things. They like to share things. Um, and as far as, um, you know, keeping their health, it would be sleep. I mean, that's the biggest, I think that's the biggest um, issue for, for the older kids is them getting enough sleep. So how many of your teenage patients do you think actually get 10 hours? Not many. Not many. And if they did, school might improve, ability to get up might improve, reaching for caffeine sources if they do, they wouldn't need to. So if there was one thing that you could tell teenagers to do, it might actually be do a lot less and get some more rest. Correct. It's kind of a motto that I think a lot of parents and adults should consider as well, (laughs) you know, is get some more rest. I think there's an epidemic of not getting enough rest. And certainly that goes along with not having the energy to go do exercise as well. If you come home from your day exhausted, you don't have that ability to go out and go for a walk or go for a run or ride your bike or whatever it might be. Because you're just so tired, you wind up self-perpetuating this cycle. It's a snowball effect. It is a snowball effect. All right. How can parents and kids keep from getting sick right before holiday times? Why does that always seem to happen? You know that you're you're taking care of yourself all year and boom, you get a break and boom, you go down with some kind of infection. Is it just that your immune system held on just long enough and bam, it just can't help you anymore? I think just it's just bad luck. Um, as far as, you know, with the holidays, we tend to see more um, respiratory illnesses in, in the winter months. Um, in the summer months, we tend to see more um, hand, foot, and mouth, um, you know, vomiting, diarrhea. And so s- certain illnesses we tend to see uh, during different times of the year. And, and the, the cold flu season is, is in the winter months, and, and that's why I think we see more illnesses around the holidays. For those people who don't want to get their flu shot because they think it could give them the flu or it <clears throat> makes them sick or it just never worked before, what sort of advice do you have to help them to realize that it actually is a good plan? Well, there's two forms of the flu shot or flu uh, vaccine that are available. One would be the the injectable, the the shot, the flu shot, um, which is an is it's not a live virus, and so you you can't possibly get the flu from the flu shot. And then there's the um, the the nasal influenza virus, which is is an attenuated or, or a, a 
um, weakened, a weakened, a weakened version of it. Um, okay. Virus um, that that may give you mild flu symptoms. That's available for children over the age of two years of age. And so, yes, you if you were to get the nasal flu, you you may get um, mild flu symptoms, um, which is um, what we're shooting for. Well, and I think in a lot of situations, your response to the flu shot is your immune system's response to building antibodies. So that can be body aches in a low-grade temperature as part of the natural response to getting any immunization, not necessarily a flu shot, but any sort of a shot. So don't fear that because that's actually a sign you're building up your immunity. Correct. And that's actually one of the instructions that I give to my parents um, after getting any immunization is that you know, if they if they have a low grade fever and they're not otherwise fussy, then then I'd let them be. I wouldn't uh, recommend uh, any Tylenol, ibuprofen. And there actually have been a couple studies looking at um, parents who premedicate um, their children as far as giving them Tylenol, ibuprofen before getting their vaccines to prevent that fever, and whether or not that blunts the immune response and and they don't take as well to the vaccination. And so I usually recommend, you know, if they have a fever and they're fussy, go ahead and give them medications. But if they just feel warm and they're otherwise fine, then um, hold off and, and, and let them build that immunity. That That's what we want. So taking the preparatory Tylenol or, or ibuprofen actually makes the shot potentially work less. It may. And that's something important to keep in mind because the other thing is not all fevers are dangerous. No. If kids are managing well and happy and playing and don't seem to be affected by it, you don't have to rush to treat it. Correct. Okay, so lots of good information that we're getting today that uh, really can help folks as school starts to just know how to protect their kids and, and protect their family and their loved ones because there's other people in home that could be significantly affected by somebody who comes home with an illness. And you might not think so much about kids getting sick, but if they go to grandma's house and grandma's kind of got some other medical conditions and she's gotten older, this could be really serious and it could really cause some troubles with grandparents. We've seen the opposite occur, actually. In the recent past, we've seen an influx of pertussis or whooping cough in the adult population Correct. that has actually set out a recommendation that for any adult, if you're needing to get your tetanus shot or if there's a new grandchild coming into the family, that you know if you haven't gotten an update on your pertussis vaccination, you should because it's the grandparents. It's my patients that are getting sick that are making your patients get sick, and then that could be a problem because pertussis vaccination doesn't start until until you're about a year old or so. Is that right? The first pertussis is given at two months, though. Oh, at two months. But, so you do but, get some protection then. Correct. But we've been seeing um, pertussis immunity waning mainly in, in the teenage years, actually, in, in, and they're in getting the adolescence. Um, and so the recommendation, as you had mentioned, um, for the adults, if you had not uh, received your um, tetanus in the past five years, would be to go ahead and get your tetanus with the pertussis booster. We're also targeting um, um, expecting mothers, um, so that expecting mothers and fathers um, should be getting their, their tetanus with a whooping cough booster prior to delivering. Well, because it just makes sense, because you don't want to wind up getting an infection that the adults can recover from. I mean, adults can get over pertussis or whooping cough pretty pretty fairly straightforward, pretty easily, but you don't want to go ahead and infect innocent kids who can't mount an immune response or who haven't been exposed to it yet, and they can get really sick. Infants, especially newborns, um, can oftentimes get extremely sick, uh, end up being on oxygen in the hospital, and so um, it's important that we immunize and vaccinate those um, around newborn infants. Like I said, we've been targeting parents, uh, grandparents as well.
All right. So the big message today is hand washing, hand washing, hand washing, and get a lot of sleep. And hopefully <laughs> you'll be able to stay healthy. Your kids will stay healthy. Your your parents and friends and family will stay healthy. And we can all stay out of the doctor's office this fall. What do you think? Sounds good. All right. Sounds like a plan. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Brent Matsumoto from Kaiser Permanente for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. Thank you for having me. All right. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. Just follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you right here next Monday on The Body Show. See you then. Mm-hmm.